I love that you can move them easily. They make my workspaces much more flexible. I like how quiet they are. I can sit inside and feel all calm, but still feel part of what's going on around me. I like what they cost. They're talking about Nook, the award-winning wellness-certified family of pods, booths, and shelters which make a workplace more flexible and more inclusive. Go to nookpod.com to find out more. Welcome back to the Work Bowl podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions, space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, fund manager, developer, property manager, agent or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Bonjour, I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and this is episode seven of season six, sponsored by TSK. Why did I say bonjour? Well, in our last episode, I dropped a cheeky mention about our partnership with MIPM to record a MIPM miniseries on site in March. I'm super excited to head to South France again as the commercial real estate industry comes back together in person for the largest industry event in two years. I've asked Nicholas Kazubek, the director of Propel by MIPM, to join me and say a few words. Bonjour, Nicholas. Hi, Caleb. How are you? Oh, fantastic. Looking forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, looking forward for it too, actually. I think we're excited as all delegates that will participate. Uh, we see it coming very well in a few weeks. 15 to 18 of March, it will be, as you said, back in March for the MIPIM. Very big edition. More than 60 countries have already confirmed that they, they will participate. And uh, personally, I'm very excited because the Propel by MIPIM brand will be there for the first time. Actually, we've organized so many events in New York, Paris, Hong Kong this last year. And for the first time... The brand is here in Cannes to foster innovation in real estate. Lots of content and insights and excitement, of course. So yeah, stay tuned and uh, excited to see the things coming. Well, Nicholas, we are very excited to be there with the Workable Podcast with you and certainly looking forward to having a great event. Thank you so much for coming on and saying a few words. Merci beaucoup. Bye-bye. Now to introduce this episode. There's been much debate over the last two years how not working in an office five days a week may affect company culture as a reason to promote the office. But there's also been discussion about how the pandemic has pulled the covers off of bad company culture. We've all seen the headlines on the, quote, great resignation. I've said on this podcast that bad company culture is a bigger threat to the office than COVID-19. And therefore, I believe we in commercial real estate have to be the champions of good company culture and lead by example. To do that, we have to have discussions around company culture. How is it created, impacted, and supported? So I've asked Matt Grimshaw, founder of the Pioneers, to join me for this episode. We endeavor to answer some of these questions, including how company culture is impacted by hybrid working and how the office can be leveraged as a tool. Considering that Matt helps fast-growing companies scale their culture, I was very interested to hear his advice for real estate companies who want to support good company culture. Some learnings in here for all of us. As always, if you have any questions or feedback on topics you want covered, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker or DM me on LinkedIn. I got to give TSK a shout out for a video I just watched on the brand new 71,000 square foot hybrid workplace they've created for insurance, risk, and commercial law firm, BLM. Pre-pandemic, BLM Law were already planning on becoming a paper-light organization, but the pandemic sped up their digital strategy. This helped them accelerate processes, become more sustainable, and allow their team to connect and communicate from anywhere. Imagine that. They wanted to adopt a more flexible approach to work and their workplace. Enter TSK. 
when you're bringing several sites together, multiple sites together, there's always a risk that, you know, some may feel inclusive, some may feel excluded. But I think what we created was somewhere that they all felt that they could come together and it really did stand out as a BLM home for them. And I think it was really important that we gave them the right settings and the right tools to enable them to encourage that kind of transition that they were going through. The biggest impact for me and the team, I think, is the whole range of different spaces there are to work, different places to work, depending on what it is we're trying to do at the time. I think that's really strong, really powerful and something we simply haven't had before. I highly recommend you watch this video. It shows how TSK helped BLM move away from their traditional style offices and create a more agile and collaborative environment for their 600 plus Manchester, England based team. The video is on the TSK website and we've put a link to it in the show notes below. Over to you, Jeff. Let's kick it. Welcome back to the Word Bowl podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Parker. And today I'm joined by Matt Grimshaw, founder of The Pioneers. The pioneers help scale-ups create cultures that make their people, customers, and investors happy. They do this by helping them design and build their People OS, that's People Operating System, a systematic approach to people management that enables their clients to create a coherent people experience and a workplace that flows. Simply put, Matt and team create scale-up cultures that founders can be proud of. More on that shortly. Matt got his law degree at Oxford University, and prior to starting the pioneers in 2008, he was an HR change manager for a FTSE 100 manufacturing group, DS Smith. Welcome to the Workable Podcast, Matt. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Oh, it's great that you agreed to come on. I know we had such a great chat in the last year and the TSK folks are raving about you. So I wanted to get you back on and have a chat on this because you're obviously working with lots of scale-ups. Before we get started though, can you sort of give us an elevator pitch on how the pioneers support scale-ups? Yeah, thanks. So if you think about that journey from being, when you're a genuine startup, you know, when you're 10, to 20 odd people, you don't need much by way of people management processes or systems. They're just going to get in the way. They'll slow you down. They'll be irrelevant very, very quickly. And if you're a founder, what you need in, in a startup is you, you need to use your personal influence to get the best out of your team. The challenge with that is it doesn't scale. The human brain can only stay on top of a certain level of social complexity, a certain number of relationships. And so once you're approaching maybe 75, 100, 150 people, your ability to get the best out of everyone as a founder, just by relying on your personal influence starts to wane. And what you need, in my opinion, is a system. You need a people management system that helps work people work together and for them to be effective. And that broadly speaking is what we help people build. You could kind of think of it a bit like the plumbing of people management. Oh, I like that. I like that. Well, Matt, you know, our audience is probably thinking right now, this is a commercial real estate podcast on space as a service. Why has Caleb invited Matt to come onto the show? But as your work is so much focused on fast scale startups and purely from an office space perspective, I think there's been some very real tensions between fast growing companies and commercial real estate, especially today. In last week's episode with Tom Duncan, we talked about a growing gap between supply and demand. And I'm going to quote Liam Smith from our headline sponsor, TSK, as he pointed me to some work that you guys did together. Liam says, startups have that unique perspective on the world like a newborn baby. Everything's fresh and ready to discover, and they're not necessarily weighed down by archaic work practices or historic processes. So in my view, in order for us to serve these customers, we have to understand what they need today. And what I'd like to do is, if it's okay with you, I'd like to start at the beginning, Matt. So can you tell us how is company culture created? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's not, there's not one answer on this. 
Although it's a great question. It's a question I think is a bit of a litmus test for people who talk about organizational culture, because frankly, there's loads of people who talk a lot about culture, but aren't really clear at what it is they're talking about. For other pioneers, we follow a definition of culture that we've taken from a chap called Edgar Schein. And he talks about culture as essentially shared learning. So the idea is, again, when you're a startup, you try stuff. If that stuff works, then you stick with it. And the more that it works, the more that you stick with it, the more ingrained that becomes within your organization and within your culture. And so by the time you get to the sort of position where we like to work with organizations, you know, once they've got product market fit, once they're funded for growth, those organizations will have a set of social norms that define, if you like, what people need to notice, think, feel, and do in order to be accepted or to feel like they belong to the group. And that's what we mean by culture. It's a shared learning or a distributed learning that influences what people pay attention to, it influences decision-making and it influences people's behavior. Okay, so if we talk about shared learning, and I'm just gonna kind of go back to an article when I was prepping for this podcast, I read an article that you guys wrote that's on your website now, and you use an example of at a fast food restaurant and if someone is cleaning up tables and the culture is focused on cleanliness, Maybe I'm misquoting you, so correct me if I'm wrong, but if the guidelines and everything, everyone in the team is focused on cleaning tables, then if that person, the new person, he overhears a customer expressing some dissatisfaction or complaining to the people they're sitting with, then that new employee will likely just sort of ignore it because everybody else is focused on cleaning, not so much customer service. Whereas if the environment there is all focused on customer service, then that employee will walk over and maybe find out what's going on and try to make the situation better. So now in real estate today, especially in the knowledge-based workforce, and I'm assuming that's most of your customers anyways, because they're fast-growing scale-up companies, if we're no longer in the same office together because we're working from anywhere outside of this pandemic, because there's a lot of conversation around that. So what kind of effect is working from anywhere or what my friend John Priest in Australia likes to call liberated working have on company culture? That's a great question. Well, look, maybe just if I quickly jump back to the example you gave of the team member working in a restaurant, I think my perspective is you are asking people within your organization, whether you're a restaurant business or any other type of business to make decisions about what they ought to be doing, how they ought to respond to things. And if you follow some of the social psychology research as we do, then the idea is that people's behavior is actually a lot more malleable than any of us care to admit. And in particular, we have a strong preference to want to fit into the groups that we belong to. So as you say, if the way in which you fit in is by cleaning, then that's going to tip the balance towards the probability that that's what you will notice and that what's what you act on. And if the social norm is towards service, then it tips it in the other way. And we talk about four influences on organizational culture. The first is the personality, the values, the behaviors of your leaders and founders. So particularly when you're small, scale-ups tend to be like families, you know, they inherit the values of their founders. The second thing is events, right? Stuff will happen, you'll respond to it. And as I said before, if it works, you'll tend to stick with it. The third thing is what we call a meta-culture. So cultural norms that apply across companies. So, you know, there are a certain set of cultural assumptions about how you run an accountancy practice that are different from how you run a retailer. Or there are certain set of norms associated with geographies. You know, we talk offline about the difference in hospitality culture between the US and the UK. And then the final thing, the fourth factor is the situation or the system in which people work. 
And that is where I think when you're looking at the liberated workspace or, you know, that remote or hybrid way, I think there's two aspects to that. The first is the metaculture. So I think if you look at remote companies, so not hybrid, but fully remote organizations, I think there are starting to emerge some ways of working or some cultural norms, if you like, about how you do that really well. So things like documentation, they tend to be organizations that document things very well. They tend to be organizations that work with asynchronous communication. They tend to have high investment in tools. And also, I think they, you know, they tend to get together once or twice a year. You know, they get the whole company to go to, I don't know, Greek Island somewhere or something like that. So they can have that little burst of face-to-face time with each other. But there's a series of practices that have emerged about how you do that well. The hybrid one, I think is more interesting. I think the conversations I have with people, but is that's the one that people are struggling with because there are less well-established answers that you can pull out of a metaculture or pull on and apply to your organization. But I don't think it's going away because I think the interesting thing is there's this human need, I think, for being with the people that you work with. I think we feel that, you know, on a personal level within the pioneers, we enjoy spending time together. And so, you know, organizations where fully remote working seems to work really well tend to be very software oriented companies. They tend to be companies that are comfortable with that asynchronous communication. And I think it's less well-suited where there are organizations that, as I say, have that human need to be together and to have those more improvised conversations where things emerge from not being particularly deliberate with your time or or from just, you know, chewing the fat as it were. Yeah, I think that there are some great examples of companies that have figured out how to nail culture in a remote environment and they're fully remote or at least remote first. And then there's some examples of companies and leaders who are demanding people return to the office and be face-to-face. And certainly there's a massive difference in the sectors that fit into those two categories. But I think what we're going to see, and this is certainly clearly just my opinion, but if I have a crystal ball in front of me, I see a large percentage of employees and companies around the world fitting into a third category. And that's, you know, as you said earlier, hybrid. And this is where I'd like to sort of explore because if you're not going all in in one direction or the other, how do you manage that and give people the tools they need to excel under those guidelines and policies? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you talked at the outset of this episode, it's like, what, where does what we do fit in with your world of workspace? And I think that's the thing for us at the Pioneers is I think we would see workplace as part of that people operating system. So my first thing is I think ordering people back to the office, I don't think that many companies will actually get away with that. I think people will vote with their feet. Hybrid is going to be the one where the market gravitates towards. Now, when you look at the workplace as part of a system for how you manage your people and how you want to work, I think it opens up opportunities for doing different things with your workplace to support the particular ways of working or the culture you're trying to create within your organization. And I think that you are looking to create spaces that speak to quite specific needs and specific cultural interests, if that makes sense. And we mentioned in our conversation before Christmas, I think it's about how you tie the hardware, if you like, of workplace with the software that you use within that workplace. You know, so I'll try and give a practical example that I'm intrigued about. Most organizations are increasingly interested in this concept called psychological safety. So the ability to take interpersonal risk. And if you're interested, Amy Edmondson, she's a professor at Harvard, has done some really interesting work in this space around how organizations with high psychological safety tend to outperform others. They tend to be more innovative. They tend to make fewer mistakes as well. 
And one of the indicators of psychological safety is conversational turn-taking. So imagine you've got, you know, company A, their lead team. If you were to record the contributions to that meeting, you'd find out, I don't know, 80% of the time the finance director is speaking and other people don't get the opportunity to speak or the CEO always speaks first and then the conversation peters out, something like that. Whereas company B, you might get a much more even distribution of the conversation. Now, in my opinion, if you are able to create workplaces that utilize technology in that way, so, you know, I could book my leadership team in the Alexa or the, the, whatever it is at the center of the table is able to record the contributions, give me a printout so that over the six months I can see how is our lead team working? I could get a report on that. Then I think I'm much more likely to come back and deliberately go in and use that space. Similarly, you know, in terms of how you're creating spaces that work for people who are both in the room and outside of the room. One of the interesting ones that I've seen popping up in London is shared production facilities. So the ability to walk in, record against the green screen or, you know, record a piece to camera, it's all set up. You just walk in, you record, then you leave. I think those sorts of spaces are going to be much more important and much more interesting to hybrid type companies because you've got to have a reason to go to the office for whatever it is you're looking to do that day that requires you to be in an office or to be together. And as I said, I think those types of activities might actually look quite different to the types of activities that would have taken place in perhaps a more traditional office-based organization. Interesting. So you think the future for this sort of managing this flexibility is to have access to different types of environments that will support the different needs of the individual on that given day? Absolutely. And look, there is a bias in this, right? Because at the Pioneers, the way in which we build out people operating systems is it's essentially Lego bricks, right? We build modules that solve specific user challenges and then we link those modules together so that they create a coherent system. So I, I have this, this predisposition, if you like, to look at workplace with, well, what's the granularity? What's the modularity? You know, how do you create the perfect space for a specific type of meeting? Or how do you create the perfect space for a specific need within your organization, whether that's around communication or feedback or whatever it might be? My sense, and as I said, I'm by no means an expert in this space, but I, my sense is I think particularly in for scale-ups, it's this flexibility that you can create if you have access to a range of spaces that you can book for an hour or half a day or whatever it might be, rather than trying to create the perfect office that's going to last you for the next two to three years. Well, this is the thing, and you touch on this and kind of brings up that tension I described at the very beginning, because if you're one of the FANG companies or a big FTSE 100 company, then maybe you provide all of these flexible spaces for your employees because you've got the budgets for it. You're big enough for it. But if you're scale up, the last thing your investors want is to be plowing a bunch of money into some fancy office space. Or is that changing? You know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but this tension that I often see is scale-ups can't predict where they're going to be at in the next couple of years in terms of headcount. So why would they take on so much space? So what sort of trends are you seeing scale-ups utilize to grow and manage this growth? Yeah, it's a really great question. I think, firstly, I'd really agree with you. My understanding of how workplaces work traditionally is, you know, longer leases, big fit-outs, you know, big spaces, those sorts of things. The challenge is if you're working with a scale-up and the founders of that company, the companies might only be two, three years old. You know, their appetite to commit to something that extends their existing lifespan as a company is probably quite limited. It just feels like an odd thing to do. If you have kids when they're growing, you're always trying to walk that line of, well, I want to buy them a t-shirt that's, you know, maybe a little bit too big, but I can't send them to school in a t-shirt that's around their ankles, you know? And yet the pace of growth in these organizations, if you're looking to double headcount over the, you know, a year, 
it's very difficult to see how that works when you're trying to plan out on very long cycles. You know, you can't really put 50 people in a space for 300. It just doesn't feel efficient. So I think there's a tension there. I think there's a, a tension in terms of probably, you know, for scale-ups, what they're looking for and flexibility with which they engage with all the other providers that service their business and what they might do on workplace. I'm not sure anyone's particularly nailed it, if that makes sense. I see a lot of empty space that seems to be marketed towards scale-ups, but it's just banks and banks of empty desks. As I said, I'm not sure that people have really got their head around how do we appeal to this, this segment. Yeah, this is the challenge, right? Because I keep banging on on this podcast about how we can't just sell a big white box with a bunch of desks in it and, and think that's good enough these days. It maybe used to be okay, especially for scale-ups. But I just think that we've we've had this point now where we know that we don't have to have the office anymore to be productive and to get shit done and to grow our company. Obviously, the world's still working today. In the knowledge-based economy, obviously, there's been some massive effects on other industries and stuff. And in this you know, software world or knowledge-based economy, if we don't have to be in the office every day, but I want to tie this back to culture. And clearly, like I said earlier, GitLab, Buffer, WordPress, they manage remote teams and a great culture. But maybe I'm biased here or being a bit cheeky and selfish, but I'd like to think that the office and the workplace can still be leveraged as a tool as part of the mix to support culture. So I'm just wondering to hear from you, how do you see the workplace fitting in, you know, at least as a central place for employees to congregate sometimes? Well, I just agree with your big white box comment. You've got to create a space that's attractive for people and people either need to use because they have to use those facilities. It's not facilities they could get at home or that they want to use. And I think that means for me, thinking through how you can personalize that employee experience so that you can meet the different needs and wants of the different people that work for you. I try maybe try and think of a practical example of that. Childcare. Childcare is one for me. So we're a nice moment of the pioneers. We've got two people who recently had a baby. A third of our team members had a baby uh, last year. So lots of young babies and little kids around the pioneers at the moment. Now for those people, you know, they want to come back into the world of work, but their needs have changed very significantly. And if we could find an office space that also had great childcare facilities, then the whole team would gravitate towards that because that would enable that person to, you know, have the flexibility around their child and popping in to see them between meetings and all those sorts of things. If we could find an office space that had production facilities that we could drop in and out of so that we could make videos for clients or that sort of thing, that would be a huge win for us. So I think you've got to be much more ambitious if you want to attract scale-ups, if you want to attract companies who are growing really well. You want to be quite ambitious about the territory into which I think you're prepared to support people and the confidence that if you provide a space that, that really connects, like really resonates with what someone needs out of that office space, then people will keep coming back to you and people will want to grow their organization with you, if you like, as a hub or on their network. Do you see that as a proactive or a reactive conversation to have, you know, again, as a real estate brand like mine, Bold, if we want to play a role in supporting good company culture. Are we having a conversation with the customer about what their employees need, their company culture, and then going and creating that for them? Or are we creating something first and then marketing that to companies that sort of fit into that? Uh, which way does it go? I think, I'm gonna, can I hedge my answer? I think it's a bit of both. <laughs> I think there's a sense in which as workplace experts, particularly around the sort of prop tech like space, like I think you've probably got an insight into what's possible that the client or the customer might not have. 
However, I do also think there's a really interesting conversation that ought to be had with a potential new customer that says, okay, what's the type of culture you're trying to create? What's important to you? What are your values? Who are you looking to attract into your organization? The biggest challenge for scale-ups is almost always around recruitment. Like how do we attract the talent we want into this organization? How do we keep it? And the more as an office provider, you can be speaking to those things that influence people's decision about whether they should join an organization, whether they thrive in that organization, whether they want to stay in that organization as their life evolves. I think that's really important. And having the flexibility to be able to tweak spaces as people grow and to know that you can do that. I think the thing about scale-ups is they tend to have quite a collaborative mindset. Like, I think they're quite happy to share resources with people, you know, like if you can provide access to childcare or access to production facilities, whatever it might be, access to town hall type spaces, because they want access to this thing, but they can't afford to pay for it all the time, which is the contrast, I think, to, as you said, the sort of big FTSE 100, where you can justify holding that cost exclusively. Okay, so sort of addressing this in a slightly different perspective, you know, coming out of COVID, we've been talking a lot about scale-ups here, but do you think there are some lessons that more established companies could learn from scale-ups in terms of workplace and hybrid and remote working? Sure. And actually, it's not just the big organizations. I think there are lessons for the workplace industry as well, because you said at the outset, why should people be interested in scale-ups? You know, it might not be where the majority of people are working at right now, but these organizations grow very, very quickly. And they also, I think, are trendsetters, you know, like if you're working in an office place with, you know, a pool table or a table, football table or free coffee or whatever, that started from the scale up space. So I think keeping an eye on what these innovative companies are doing is important and interesting. The key for scale ups is that in my experience, they aren't distracted by sunk cost. They're quite happy to pivot. If something's not working, they just change it. Whereas my experience of working with much larger organizations is that sunk cost holds them back in terms of ways of working. You know, there's a reticence to change things or admit you might not have got it right first time. And in office space, I think that plays out with, if you like, big fit outs that then are set in stone. And I think if I was to give anyone advice moving forward is, yeah, the world's going to continue to be very unpredictable. And as organizations respond to that, they're going to need to do things differently and work differently. And the more flexibility I think you can build into your space, the better. And the more scope you have to utilize your space in a way that gives you competitive advantage, like utilize your space in a way that drives a particular aspect of your culture or a particular aspect of your employee experience, the more likely it is that that's something that's going to give you a return. I think what will fall out is if you like the mediocrity, you know, the desk and the white box that you talked about previously. I think people are going to pay for people to sit at desks for much longer. They'll pay for people to have access to great meeting rooms or great collaborative spaces, but that mediocrity and, you know, what offices look like just five years ago, I think will change and change quite quickly. Well, that's a fascinating topic that we, we won't go down a rabbit hole on, but, but I'll say that you said that w people won't pay for people to sit at desks much longer. And I'll go further and say, I wonder if people actually pay for per square foot much longer and will you just buy memberships? But again, that's another rabbit hole we won't get into on this podcast. But no, this has been a fantastic conversation and we're just scratching the surface of how culture and workplace come together. I am a believer that the future of work is plus not versus, it is hybrid, it's not one way or the other. And to the extent that people can be flexible and empower their teams to make those decisions, you know, I think that's the winning cultures in my opinion. 
obviously for the office supply side of the industry, we need to be thinking about delivering space as a service across our assets. But of course, I'm biased on that. Let me move into the quick fire round. I've got three quick questions for you. Really quick question, quick answer. And the first question is, who is your go-to for inspiration? This could be a person, a website, a podcast, anything. Oh, there's loads. You got to pick one. Just what, what's the top of mind? <laughs> pick one. Oh, my goodness. Do you know what? I'm going to go way back. I had an amazing philosophy teacher when I was at school, a guy called Mark Rock, Rocky. And increasingly, I think I don't have an original idea. It's just a regurgitation of something he talked to me about when I was 17. Fascinating. Well, he made an impact on your life in, in philosophy. I had a philosophy. I, I liked it so much in uni. I actually took it twice, but we won't explain why. But <laughs> So, okay, second question. If you could wave a magic wand to change anything in regards to company culture right now, what would that be? The biggest influences on company culture are the things that are hidden from view. And I think if you look at the way in which most organizations work and behave at the moment, it's because organizations over the last hundred years have been designed to work, if I'm honest, for middle-aged, middle-class white guys. And whether that's in the rhythm at which organizations work or the space in which they work or any of that. I don't think we realize the extent to which we've built organizations primarily to work for one persona or one type of person. So you're saying you would wave the magic wand to bring the hidden aspects to the surface. Yeah. And that's why you need a magic wand because I don't think you, it's very difficult to, <laughs> to bring those things to the surface and also to help organizations see how they could be much healthier places, how they could thrive a lot more if they were much more flexible in terms of accommodating different people's needs and what makes different people flourish. Well said. Well said. Okay. Well, here's a lighter topic question. Where's your favorite holiday destination? It feels so long since I got to go alone. <laughs> well, you're sitting at Oxford today, is that right? Oxfordshire and Cotswolds. Yeah, I just had no? of Oxford in the Cotswolds, okay. so it's okay. not too, it's, it's a very grey day, but it's... You live at a holiday destination. Yeah, yeah. Where's my favourite place to go on holiday? Italy. Italy. Oh, well. I love I did the food, the weather, I just, yeah, I love Italy. Cannot disagree with that. I love Italy as well, as I've said multiple times over the seasons here. So, Matt, thank you. We'll have to have some Italy stories soon. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on, sharing your insights with us. Where can we point people to find you on social media? Oh, good question. So the Pioneers website is thepioneers.co.uk. We are on Twitter at the Pioneers UK, and we're on LinkedIn. If you search for us, hopefully you should be able to find us. Okay, if we put your LinkedIn profile in the show notes as well. You're very welcome to. Well, we'll put links in the show notes to the Pioneer um, social media and website, your LinkedIn, and make sure everybody can connect with you easily. Thank you so much again for coming on. I think there's so much to learn right now around this topic as we go forward, and there's so much change happening and uncertainty. So we need more conversations like this being had. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Drumroll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com. Making a high-quality podcast like this takes a lot of work. That's a fact. But not when you hire Copus. With our white glove experience, we handle everything for you. From guest outreach all the way through to publishing and promotion, we handle it all. You show up to hold great interviews and build relationships with your guests, and we take care of everything else. Podcasting is not just about the audience. 
every podcast interview is the start of a new relationship. With a weekly podcast, you would build relationships with 52 ideal partners or prospects through your podcast interviews over the next 12 months. Do you believe that 52 new relationships would grow your business? We do. Contact Jason at copus, K-O-P-U-S dot com and let's talk.